Hello, friends and fans, and welcome to Copywriter Confessions. Before getting into today's confession, I'd like to first thank today's sponsor. SEO. It's not what it used to be. You've stuffed your keywords, added your backlinks, and optimized those headlines, but thanks to generative AI, zero-click content, and a flurry of Google updates and daily algorithm changes, SEO content is quickly becoming a thing of the past. SEO. Today's guest is Sammy Ross. Sammy is a copywriter based in Seattle, Washington. She has over a decade of experience, mostly in the ad agency space, with some stops in the startup world along the way. Outside of her nine to five, she's been having fun working on a fantasy novel. Welcome, Sammy. Hi, thank you for having me today. Thanks for being here. So tell me, Sammy, what's your copywriter confession? My copywriter confession is that I am still angry at ad agencies. (laughs) I still feel angry at the sexism, at the macro and micro biases, and just at the difficulties that I had to face early in my career. And I think it's good to talk about it. (laughs) So what's the story of how you became a copywriter at an ad agency in the first place? I started working in ad agencies back in 2010, 2011. I was still in college and I came home one summer. I was a creative writing major and a sociology major. And I thought I was actually going to go into the music industry at the time. I was a radio DJ. I wanted to be a music journalist. And I ended up running into a neighbor. I think she may have been an account person at an agency back in Chicago. And I told her what I was doing. I was like, I'm writing a lot of weird poetry right now. And she's like, no, no, you need to go into advertising here, you know, think about it. And so she ended up helping me break in with her agency. And I started on the account side and it became clear within maybe 24 hours that I am not an account person. (laughs) And the creatives there kind of took me under their wing. And uh, 10 years later, here we are. So how would you describe the toxicity that you experienced while at these agencies? I think that there were always elements that were very toxic. And it was more that you wake up one day and you're like, oh my God, you know, it's actually really inappropriate that that guy at work is calling me baby. Or it's actually a little bit strange that, you know, out of everybody who works for them, the person who needs their birthday invitations mailed out is coming to me to mail them when that's not my job. You know, why aren't they asking the man who's at the same level as me or who has the same role? He's not being asked to, you know, pick up prescriptions or pick up lunch. So I think that those little things, I started to notice those first. And so was this at every agency you worked at? So the traditional agencies, which is where I started, that's, I think, where you would see a little bit more of that, like, mad men glorification. And so what I mean by that was there used to be traditional agencies, which was where you would work to make radio ads and things that were on TV, print ads, and then digital agencies were actually separate. And that's where you would make web pages and apps and things like that. They were kept separately, and they also had a separate kind of culture as well. So if you would, Sammy, what's an example of sexism that you personally experienced? So at my first junior role job, the ACD, the associate creative director, he was also a writer. And you know, this is a stage of my career where I'm trying to make a good impression. And I was taking the job very, very seriously. 
And what I started to notice was that anytime I approached him to look at copy decks, to talk about the work, he would immediately go into these monologues about how sweet and innocent my voice was, how I had just this high-pitched, sweet voice. He loved how my voice sounded. It just sounded so childlike. I mean, these were words that he was actually using. And he would say this in my peers and my coworkers. So very quickly, I realized I began missing out on opportunities. He would never pick me to staff cool projects or things like that. And so did you do anything to change how you sounded or did you just write that guy off? I would try to adjust my voice, but I would have these breaking points. If you're not being authentic to yourself, if you're not speaking in a way that's comfortable for you, it just takes up too much brain space. And yeah, eventually I left the job. Ugh, that is infuriating. Why do you suppose this sexism has been able to continue for so long at these agencies? I think, you know, these are creative spaces, so the structure is usually a little bit looser. You know, you're encouraged really to be more casual. It's a heavy drinking culture, so that makes things blurry. And I think it was male-dominated for so long, so there's a very strong boys club. And what kind of impact, if any, did the Me Too movement have on these more traditional agencies? All of a sudden, teams were forced to look at, okay, if we're kicking off a project, like, it's actually weird that there's no women in the room. I think that that's how the Me Too movement began to change things. I think it also maybe made some of these, like, skeezy guys more nervous. And you know what? I don't really mind that. And what about more recently? Would you say things have gotten better? I think in recent years, in a post-Me Too world, things are changing because now we have things like TikTok, we have Glassdoor, we have Fishbowl. There's a lot of ways to be anonymous and cause quite a stir, which does put some of the power back. So I think now what we're really working on is educating people about the micro biases. And for those who may not know, what's an example of a micro bias? A microbias would be if you were presenting work with your creative partner and you're a person of color and they're white. And for some reason, the client or your boss or whoever only directs their comments to the white person. What do you say to people who want to make a positive change but don't know how to or don't feel like they can or are just unsure of what to do? Stop just thinking about getting in trouble and start thinking about what do I actually want this world to look like? I think that if you're really serious about creating change in your community, you have to hold yourself accountable, which doesn't just happen in a one hour training. It's like a muscle that you have to work and that requires a lot of uncomfortable reflection. Do I actually care about other people who don't look like me? We all wanna love our jobs, but also we wanna be respected as people first. This past year, LeanIn.org and McKinsey & Company conducted its eighth annual Women in the Workplace Survey, the largest comprehensive study of the state of women in corporate America. Here's a few of the findings. Only one in four C-suite executives is a woman. Only one in 20 is a woman of color. For every 100 men promoted from entry level to manager, only 87 women are promoted and only 82 women of color are. For every woman at the director level who gets promoted, two women directors choose to leave their company. And among employees who switched jobs in the past two years, 48% of women leaders say they did so because they wanted more opportunity to advance. Over the past 30 years, research has shown that stereotypes about what men and women are capable of and how they should behave cause people to evaluate men and women differently. Women are subjected to a higher bar, requiring more evidence than men to be seen as qualified. 
If people judge a woman to be competent, they often judge her as less likable, a correlation that is not true for men. In an attempt to raise awareness of these gender biases, companies implement mandatory training programs. We're all familiar with them by now. But do these programs actually work? Actually, no. A growing body of research finds unconscious bias training is at best ineffective and at worst, it serves to reinforce the biases people already hold. One study found that when people are provided with evidence about their stereotypes, it actually reinforces these beliefs and even encourages people to condone them. When participants in training sessions are given evidence that they are biased and told that these biases are unconscious, it encourages them to believe that they can do nothing to change these beliefs. They're unconscious after all. What unconscious bias training doesn't account for are the systemic and structural issues that allow biases to be perpetuated in the workplace. These are the unfair policies, the differences in opportunities, and inequitable treatment that allow bias to persist. At the individual level, unconscious bias training is more impactful when participants connect their behavior to the disadvantages and discrimination that different groups face. This connection happens when participants reflect on other people's experiences and listen to their stories. That's it for today's episode. You can check out the show notes for links to the articles and stats I mentioned. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Copywriter Confessions podcast, email sponsors at copyconfessions.com. If you have a copywriter confession you'd like to share on the podcast, email me, Janet, at copyconfessions.com. And lastly, if you'd like to receive copywriting career advice, email hello at copyconfessions.com.